0: Good evening. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics on Michael Friggin on the Nahum Siegel Network, nahumsiegel.com, jm in the am.org. And the election returns have settled in a little bit. No question about it. It was a Democrat sweep. Not just for the presidency, where the president at this point has won pretty much every swing state that was up for grabs coming in with a return and even winning Florida, a very decisive win. Republicans snatched defeat from the jaws of victory in the Senate. It seemed, let's say, six, eight, 12 months ago, they were poised to take over the U.S. Senate and have a majority there. At this point, 55-45, as Maine's Angus King, an independent, has decided to caucus with the Democrats. So what are we left with? We're left with the Republican Congress, seemingly more intransigent a little bit. Paul Ryan won his race for re-election to the House. Not, obviously, as vice president. Got the second choice. Guess he got to vote for himself twice in Wisconsin. He's back. He's back in the Congress. That could create a little bit of a leadership fight, within the Republican hierarchy in the U.S. House. And we have, as I mentioned last week, the fiscal cliff coming upon us, which essentially means that Washington is finally, finally, finally going to have to make some hard decisions about spending and the budget and beyond. We're also two, two and a half weeks now beyond Hurricane Sandy. And as I mentioned My immediate area of the five towns of Long Island and Far Rockaway was severely adversely affected. The government response was at best inadequate. The Red Cross response was inadequate. All those that we expect to come in the time of a crisis let us down a little bit. But the community, the Jewish community, the Orthodox community, and the general Jewish community rallied and have been able to provide very basic services on a grand scale, on a truly awesome scale, to many of the displaced and the affected and those in need. So kudos to organizations out there like Met Council, UJA Federation, Achiezer, Chaste Leiv, the Unsung Heroes, Hatzalah, and many, many others, Ms. Askim, they all come to mind when talking about how our community rallies in response to a tragedy and to a crisis. And I know Nachum has mentioned this several times, and he's had guests on the show who have talked about it. But I do want to say personally, I know that this is a political show, and this is a little bit more about government, that Sandy was a great failure for many governments, but a great, it was a a moment where many in the Jewish community really rose to the occasion in so many ways. And I mention this again because I lived through it, lived without power for almost two weeks. And to know in 2012 that you are sitting there not having many of the basic necessities and that many people around you are literally out ...of their house and out in the cold with nothing. It's difficult. It's difficult to take physically, psychologically, emotionally. The wounds are still there and there's so much more that we can do to make that happen. This week, I think the storm claimed its first political head... ...which would be Mike Hervey, the COO of LIPA, the much vilified Long Island Power Authority... And in full disclosure, I have to say, I was associated with LIPA for several years. And Mike Hervey, I believe, was unfairly scapegoated. I'm going to say it right here. Not to be too parochial. I know we're supposed to talk about politics, but this is a political decision. LIPA it has been a stepchild of New York state government. It's owned by the government, controlled by the government, but... Politicians around Long Island and around New York State don't really want to have too much to do with it because it's an expensive entity. And why is it so expensive? Because 20 years ago, they tried to build a nuclear power plant on Long Island. And Loco went ahead, Long Island Lighting Company built this plant. The Fed said yes. The state government said no. Loco went ahead. It never opened. Saddled with $5 billion in debt, $6.5 billion in debt, and the rest is history. A state takeover, and you are left with the public assuming a huge debt that they pay off every year as part of their electric rates. And that, of course, affects the modernization of the system. If you can't modernize the system because you just don't have the cash, well, what are you left with? That doesn't mean that doesn't excuse the electric companies from having done a less than admirable job in storm preparation, that doesn't ex- excuse the patchwork of governments. There are about seven, eight layers of governments in some place, some places on Long Island, be they, town, village, county, school district, fire district, water district all accountable to different people. And this is 2012, folks. It's time to streamline. It's time to get things together. It's time to consolidate so that government can work in an efficient way. A lot of officials turn around and say, when you ask them for help, they say, well, I don't control that. This other guy does. Makes it very frustrating for the average citizen. Kind of like LIPA. LIPA itself doesn't control the electric system. That's the company they contract to, National Grid. As it is, they all fell down on the job There's no question, there's no excuse that in 2012 they don't know what resources are going to what place and they don't know when somebody without power is going to get power. But let's get back to politics. There's always a lot going on. And we're going to shape the cabinet. The president is going to shape the cabinet for the next four years. Rumored departures of Hillary Clinton, potentially Tim Geithner, Others, seemingly forced departure right now of General David Petraeus in a growing scandal, which couldn't take down other national security officials and other generals from the military. What will transpire in these next four years? And if you think that that doesn't directly impact the Jewish community, well, the national security team is probably the most key when it comes to Israel. So we have fantastic lineup with us this evening. We will have on the show Nathan Diamond, the Executive Director for Public Policy for the Institute for Public Affairs of the Orthodox Union, an old Washington hand, very experienced, knows what's going on, and he's going to fill us in on a lot of different things. Also, a survey, not a poll, but they surveyed results from Orthodox communities around the country to look at their results and look how they voted in the presidential election. And they've done this for the last couple cycles. And after that, we're going to have Liz Benjamin of Capital Tonight, an experienced blogger and journalist who knows the Albany scene, and she's going to talk about some of the chaos going on in New York. We're also going to examine the Democratic sweep. I think a lot of people have told me over the last couple of weeks, wow, they really expected the Republicans to do well in this election. And that could be part of the parochial nature of our community, of the Orthodox community, Perhaps hoping, perhaps getting their information from Fox News and others, Karl Rove, with various predictions. But I, those that really looked at the polling and looked at it closely, I think for a lot of people was not surprising. I went on Nachum's show, said that Obama was going to win. The next morning in the supermarket, people said, "Are you crazy?" Course it's not gonna happen. Well, look, I'm happy that people are listening, that's all I could say. But (laughs) I was right. It's not that much of a question. One thing we're gonna delve into is the fact that politicians and government are so unpopular, and I'm gonna pose this to our to our guests. Politicians and government are so unpopular yet yet we seem to re elect the same people. Nancy Pelosi is going to return as Democratic leader. John Boehner is likely to return as Speaker. You'll probably have Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell in the Senate. And of course, President Obama is returning for another four years. So, what is in front of us? What are we looking at now? As I mentioned, Washington is going to have to make some hard decisions in the coming weeks in order to prevent a very significant recession and a very significant fiscal hole from opening. The states are also going to have to wrestle with some very significant decisions. There's just not a lot of money out there when it comes to taxes and to raising taxes. Governor Christie in New Jersey, who had proposed a tax cut, is now looking at the fact that that is not going to be possible with the rebuilding after Hurricane Sandy. So we'll have to look at what they do and what these governors do and how that spills down to counties and to towns and to villages and to other jurisdictions because there is just not that much money out there. And that is going to be tough to square with a country that is, might have a decidedly more liberal bent Where are we going to go with the tax raising? The the president is already saying he's going to raise taxes. We'll have to see whether the Republicans go along with that. Is there a mandate to raise? Is there not? What's on the table? What's not? But one thing is for certain, Washington is going to have to make some very tough decisions. We'll also look at the impact of the super PACs. Citizens United decision that brought so much outside money into the race. Most of it probably came on behalf of Republicans. Sheldon Adelson spent a great number on his own. What kind of impact did they get? Did they get a return? The pundits think right now they didn't. What I've read, it certainly seems like they didn't. Most of their candidates lost. Sheldon Adelson had a one small victory in Nevada, which has traditionally been a Republican state. But now, certainly fell into the president's corner and is definitely, definitely a swing state at this point. Okay, so there's so much to talk about, there's so much to think about, there are big decisions going on, and that's why we bring the experts on the show to help us understand them. So as I mentioned, our first guest is Nathan Diamond. The executive director for public policy for the orthodox union a key player for the jewish community in washington and nathan thank you for joining us here on spin class
1: all right happy to be with you michael
0: so nathan let's delve into it a week ago we had a decisive win for the president and i think that many in the orthodox community probably expected otherwise from your perspective from the inside the beltway perspective was this unexpected
1: uh, it, it, it was certainly not unexpected. Um, I don't mean to say though that it was obvious that the president was going to win i mean all the all the polling um, indicated that it was a very close race um, and uh, in the key battleground states um, and uh, go, going into election day and and that's the way in large measure, it turned out to be. Uh, Florida was not decisively called for the president until several days after Election Day. Although by that point, um, he didn't need those electoral votes anymore. Um, you know, Ohio. You uh, Ohio. The president won by perhaps a more comfortable margin uh, than than might have been expected, but it was not by no means a blowout. Um, so, I think going into Election Day, I think both, si- both sides had a right to feel that they had a, they had a good chance at winning. Uh, but uh, the Obama-Biden team came out on top.
0: Yes, they did. I think they looked at the states that they needed to win and executed well in winning those states. And the small number of swing states that exist in our polarized country. So...
1: Yeah, and it wasn't only, and it wasn't only a matter of geography. It was also very much a matter of demography. Um, The the Obama campaign succeeded um, in turning out large portions of uh, Hispanics and younger voters and female voters, um, which uh, you know, and those those demographic groups decisively went for the president over Mitt Romney, um, and uh, and that's why the president won.
0: So that's a good segue into something I found particularly interesting that the Orthodox Union compiled, which is a very micro-demographic, which is that of Orthodox Jews, and you collected some data, or people in your office collected some data, on the voting trends over the last couple elections amongst the Orthodox community in select places. I know personally in my community of Lawrence uh, went decisively for Mitt Romney, 85%, but uh, tell us about what the results were elsewhere in the country.
1: Well well, well we we pulled uh, selected voting precincts from different places in the country New York, New Jersey, Florida, Ohio, um, and uh, for example, uh and and while there are there are few, if any, election precincts which are whose populations are one hundred percent Orthodox, you know, we we can tell where there's a large portion of Orthodox uh voters. And um in 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 a number of those precincts, well in all those precincts, we saw a trend a trend line continue, which was basically that uh as was the case in the two thousand and four and two thousand and eight presidential election the republican candidate um did did better if not won uh, that those, those particular precincts as opposed to other precincts in the immediate area so um, for example, uh, again, we don't have all the numbers in yet, but uh, in the precincts in 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 Teaneck, New Jersey, for example, that we looked at um, you know, Mitt Romney uh, scored a a uh, a much more substantial uh, share of the vote than uh, than President Obama did. Um, and that was echoed uh, for example, as well in wickliffe Ohio where the tells yeshiva is located in their election precinct. Um, again, that doesn't mean we can't we can't look behind those numbers and say, you know, that uh orthodox voters um, voted at you know 100% for Romney uh, over Obama. Um, but it's indicative again of a trend uh and of the fact that uh that that Romney enjoyed larger support in the orthodox community than in other parts of the Jewish community. But, 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 also, it's to be fair that um, you know that President Obama probably earned a fair share of orthodox votes as well.
0: I would imagine that he did. There's no question that uh, when you really get drilled down on it, the orthodox community is not monolithic. Uh, and I think you know that well. Uh, maybe maybe that's something that you can explain to the audience as to how what the perception is in Washington with regard to the Orthodox community, because I, I think a lot of people are out there now equating the Orthodox vote with being a Republican vote, and that's not, certainly not consistently the case.
1: Right. I, I think, uh, I think is it, is it, something that's more is, is very useful to look at is um, polling that's been done uh, over, uh, not only earlier this year, but over a number of years by the American Jewish Committee you know, which is a which is a mainstream, secular Jewish organization. Uh, they do they, they conduct polling on an annual basis, um, uh, looking into the, the political views of the American Jewish community generally, and and they do ask for people to identify by denomination, um, and 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 that and that's helpful for them to um, drill down a little bit more. And what and what we've seen in that polling. Is that in the Orthodox community, um, uh, you have um, you have people who rate um, concerns with regard to uh, U.S. policy toward Israel as a much higher um, factor in determining who they're going to vote for than many, you know, than the average is the case in other uh, in, in, in other Jewish community segments, um, and you also have on some of the social issues relating to uh women's issues, relating to gays, um, a more uh you know moderate or even conservative attitude amongst Orthodox Jews in contrast to others in the more liberal segments of the Jewish community. Um, so uh the, the the trend line that we see in the vote is consistent with that uh trend um, in which which would make Orthodox Jewish voters uh, more open to considering and more open to voting for Republican candidates, although not exclusively so.
0: Newsday has a very interesting feature on their website, just with regard to Long Island, where they code all the election districts red and blue. And uh, not to be too local about it, if you look at the Five Towns area, not just Lawrence, but Cedarhurst, Woodmere, uh and uh, some of the Hewlett areas, you see, in almost every election this time around, a solid red. Uh, now, obviously, this is not a m- necessarily. Are
1: you suggesting you live in the Alabama part of? Uh, well, North I was going to
0: say perhaps I am in the red state cocoon or the red area cocoon of of the of the Northeast because, uh, I, as I said, my particular election district, my particular uh, poll polling machine uh, was 96% for Romney. Um, There were only five voters who voted for Obama. So uh, that's, uh, you know, that's something that's probably noteworthy. But as I said, I think that there's a difference between not just uh, Jewish attitudes or Jewish political attitudes uh, on the large, uh, on the small C conservative and small on the liberal side, versus Orthodox, non-Orthodox, there's probably a difference between Jews living in New York, New Jersey, and outside. Would that be fair?
1: Uh, That could well be, although, you know, I I also want to underscore that um, the views views in the Orthodox community, or the Jewish community more more broadly, are not radically different from... uh, the concerns of Americans generally, again, to go back to the polling that we had before the election um, from the American Jewish committee and from some others, um, you know, concerns about the economy, concerns about health care, concerns about uh, Medicare and Medicaid um, were ranked as very uh, high priority concerns um, by Jews in general and by Orthodox Jews among them. Um, and, you know, those were the issues that were of concern to non-Jews and, and, and people of all kinds of dev- demographic groups in this country. Um, so we're not, in the broader Jewish community or even in the Orthodox Jewish community, you know, an island unto ourselves um, uh, at all. Uh, I would also say that um, you know, I, was in, I was in Cleveland, Ohio, the week before the election and uh, spent some time talking to some people, in the Orthodox community there, um, and and you know and they, and they were the voters that were deciding the presidency far more than uh, uh, than you or I living in New York or Maryland. Um, but and, and and again, what I heard from them were concerns about Israel-related issues, um, but also uh, concerns about the economy, discussions about the auto bailout. Um and and all the other things that, that other folks in Ohio were, were were discussing.
0: so we're really no different than the rest of the country, which is uh which is good to know. I think that the one for voters that put Israel first and foremost as let's say one, two, and three on their list, uh the possibility is that they will, in at least in presidential and federal elections, probably uh, be more conservative in their. In their thinking. But uh, l- let me just ask you
1: but you also sorry, but you know, we also have to make the point that I know that it's the conventional wisdom in, in, in the Orthodox community or certainly some parts of the Orthodox community, um, to uh, to either uh, discount or or uh, or deride um, what President Obama had done over the past four years toward Israel um but uh you know there the, at the same time um there there is a case there and the democrats and the obama campaign were making it very very strongly um, particularly in florida and ohio they weren't spending so much time in the five towns uh or in new jersey for that matter but 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 in ohio and in florida there was a campaign that was waged by the obama campaign with regard to the president's record on Israel. And they made an affirmative campaign about um, his support for israel's security, all the all the all the military funding that he's provided to Israel, all of the um, uh work they've done uh overt and covert to thwart Iran from obtaining nuclear weapons. Um, so uh and, and and it all and I would say it all culminated Um, uh, in in the last debate between Obama and Romney um, Romney uh, criticized the president for not having visited Israel during his presidency and uh, you know say what you will, the president came back with a very strong and firm response where he talked about his trip to Israel when he was a candidate in 2008 um, and spoke very uh, forcefully, uh, in in his own words and from his own perspective about his approach toward Israel and his attitude toward Israel, the Obama campaign turned that into a web video, just that snippet from the debate, and circulated it, uh, you know, actively and virally um, in the Jewish communities in Florida and, and Ohio, et cetera. Um, so, you know, they were waging a campaign there.
0: Yeah, so you, you anticipated the question I was going to ask you, which is wonderful, which is, how is it that Israel has become, or at least a, uh, it's the perception of many, to be a partisan political football, uh, and that Israel had long been bipartisan as a, as an issue, and it seems sometimes that it is now used as a weapon by one party against the other?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think it's been made more of a partisan issue by um, by the professional partisans. And what I mean by that is um, by campaign operatives um, and 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 organizations as opposed to uh, elected members of Congress or even, you know, presidential administration. That's not to say that the elected officials don't realize that it's a political issue and try to benefit from it. Um, But, but the, the kinds of uh, uh, spin use your, uh, (laughs) use your, uh, your uh, show title, right? Absolutely. uh, We're all about spin here. Right. So, so, so the spin uh, tactics that are utilized um, are, Come out of more, come more from political operatives, from the Republican Jewish Coalition, from the National Jewish Democratic uh, Council, um, you know, and from and from operations like that. You still have; it's still very much the case that in the United States Congress, um, support for Israel is a broad bipartisan issue, um, and and you will you will see day in and day out or week in and week out. Republicans and Democrats working together uh, on supporting the U.S.-Israel relationship and Israel's security and welfare. Um, and at the presidential level, uh, you know, people should not forget that um, George, in, in his second term, George W. Bush pursued, uh, you know, uh, tried to try to restart or jumpstart the peace process between the Israelis and Palestinians. He held a conference in Annapolis for that purpose. Then Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice um, talked, you know, talked critically about Israeli settlement activity and all the sort of things um, that uh, people in our community um, have criticized President Obama for doing. Um, we criticized President Bush to some degree when he did it as well. Um, but my point is that. Um, you know, there's, there's been a consistency on, on many issues, both in support of Israel and uh, to some degree critical of Israel across administrations and across political parties. Um, and, it's, and it's the political partisans and operatives that are looking to utilize uh, disagreements where they can find them to, uh, to garner votes and to raise money.
0: So we're here with Nathan Diamond from the Orthodox Union talking about the Jewish vote and the spin around it. This is the Nachum Siegel Network spin class with Michael Fragan. And I want to ask you specifically with regard to that money and the professional political partisans who have spent all that money making Israel a wedge issue. Was it money well spent? I've asked some other guests that we've had previously. Did the RJC get anything for its buck? Did Sheldon Adelson receive a good return on his investment? On this, it doesn't seem that they've won a lot of these uh, these swing states or swing elections. Uh, yeah, I, I uh,
1: you know I I, I think um, I think all Americans should be happy and relieved that um, that uh, a lesson learned from this presidential election cycle is um, is hundreds of millions of dollars cannot buy a result. That um, at the end of the day, um, you know, at least at, at least at the national level, um, the election outcome is determined by um, what the candidates do and what their campaigns do. Um, and uh, money is important for that. But, uh, but just carpet bombing television ads or robocalls or whatnot is not going to get you where you need to go. You know, the real irony of, of, of Sheldon Nielsen's efforts uh, is that um, is that uh, in the, in his home state of Nevada um, Sheldon Adelson has been uh, uh, a, a critic of, uh, of former congresswoman Shelley Berkeley for many years um, didn't get along for a variety of reasons um, however um, mr er- mr Adelson realized that congresswoman Berkeley was a staunch Supporter of Israel, after a fashion that Adelson approves of, so he decided not to contribute money um, to the incumbent Republican Senator Dean Heller, um, who Shelley berkeley was challenging, um, and and there, Sheldon Adelson did not spend money, um,
0: and, and and he, he got, won that race, and he got
1: the result, and he got the result that he presumably wanted which was that uh, Berkeley was unable to unseat
0: Heller. Yeah, fascinating, isn't it? Let's uh, just to get back to Washington for one second, because we have a couple more minutes left. What do you think the next two years is going to bring us? It's not going to bring us a lot of new faces at the top. So we we see that the leadership is probably going to remain in place. Are we headed for a very significant stalemate over the next two years?
1: Uh, well, you know, uh, when I get questions like this, I like to invoke Yogi Berra, who said that, uh, predictions are difficult to make, especially when they're about the future. Um, but, but what I will say That's is That's well this, said. But well, what I will say is this. Um, what's going to happen in the next, uh, two to three years is largely going to be determined by what happens in the next four to six weeks. Um... You know, uh, I'm sure all your listeners are familiar with the so-called fiscal cliff negotiations that are going on um, in which uh, the president um, and the Republican-led House of representatives in particular are, um, you know, in a showdown uh, slash negotiation over taxes and budget and spending, um, and the president has staked out his position. Uh, he's going to be having a, uh, he, he will have just had a press conference uh, uh, Wednesday afternoon in Washington to, uh, to, to to push his position some more. Um, and and Speaker Boehner and the House Republicans are, are putting forward their position. Um, how that negotiation goes, um, and whether they're able to forge uh, some sort of compromise, uh, or whether we go over the proverbial cliff, um, and and then how that's dealt with in the first uh, quarter of 2013 um, is going to is going to really determine everything that comes afterwards. Um,
0: it's certainly if, it's certainly going to force Washington to make some tough decisions. And one last question, Nathan, uh, I want to get your take on Hillary Clinton's potential replacement. If they're already floating the Susan Rice trial balloon, and wh- where do we go with that? Uh, there's certainly some staunch opposition.
1: Um, my, my expectation is that uh, Susan Rice will be nominated and Susan Rice will be confirmed. Uh, the uh,
0: Nathan, uh, I thought you don't make predictions.
1: Yeah, well, I'm just saying that's my expectation.
0: Uh, okay, not a prediction.
1: Uh, the, the Susan Rice um, has been a close foreign policy advisor to President Obama for many years. Um, they have a very, they have a very good personal relationship. Um, she's, she's done, uh, by, by, by the estimates of folks in the foreign policy community. She did a very good job as U.S. ambassador to the U.N., um, which is the post that she's had these past few years. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the concern that's been raised with regard to her as been well, she have a tough nomination fight because she was one of the first people that the administration sent out onto television to talk about the attack in Benghazi, um, and she made statements which turned out to not be true. Um, it's not clear whether she knew those statements were untrue at the time, but more importantly, you know, the, the Democrats have increased their majority in the Senate with this election. So... The bottom line is, <laughs> um, you know, the Republicans can raise criticisms, but the Democrats have a vote. And if the president wants her, uh, you know, I I would expect the president's going to get her.
0: Okay, but let's expect a bruising Washington circus on this one, I would imagine. So. Uh,
1: by, by the way, Hillary Clinton was quoted, I think, uh, a couple days ago, saying she's not going to step down until the Benghazi uh, attack investigation is concluded, um, and uh, whatever questions need to be cleared up are cleared up. So for, for, the, for the purpose that whoever succeeds, or whether it's Susan Rice or anybody else, is not going to have to deal with that. So, um, you know, that might uh, that might relieve the, the, pr- the political pressure, so to speak, uh, on Rice as well.
0: Well, of course, that is all complicated by the mess of the... Petraeus scandal, which uh, seems to be ever-evolving, which is causing a lot of Washington intrigue, and who knows where that will go and how that will affect the national security establishment. Nathan, thank you very, very much for joining us. Hope to have you on again, and thank you for the keen insight, both inside and outside the Beltway.
1: Great to talk to you, Michael. Have a good
0: evening. You too, Nathan. And we are here on the Nachum Siegel Network. This is Spin Class with Michael Fragan. We have our next guest... Liz Benjamin, the host of Capital Tonight on the YNN Network and the author of the State of Politics blog beforehand, a blogger with the Daily Politics, and if you are not an avid reader of her work, you should be. Liz, thank you for sharing with us your insight into political, all things political.
2: Uh, Thank you very much, Michael. That's very kind. It's my
0: pleasure. So... I think a lot of our listeners, uh, given where we broadcast and the network that we're on, probably were not expecting the Democratic sweep that occurred on November 6th. Mm. Give, us, uh, give us some insight as to whether that was expected and uh, where were the surprises. And uh, I think there were, I can name some, but I'm curious to hear what you have to say.
2: <clears throat> well, um, you know, it's interesting. Certainly the Republicans were taken aback. And many observers were surprised. Uh, but there were some people, including myself, who kept cautioning that while everyone was predicting victory for the Senate Republicans, because they had, of course, the governor on their side with the redistricting plan that had been significantly gerrymandered to benefit them. And the New York
0: State Senate Republicans were saying. Right. right. A,
2: ca- a cash advantage. Um uh, and that, and th- th- that's what I'm talking about here. You you want to broaden it out to the White House. We can get there in a second. Well, not
0: the White House, maybe the congressional races. New York is supposed sure, to be a battleground. Sure. I, just... I think
2: that, I think that, but, but, that what I'm going to say is probably one and the same for also the congressional races, which is to say that a presidential year in a Democrat dominated state like ours brings out casual, once in every four year voters who are Democrats who might not know that much about down ballot races. Who tend to vote down the ticket, uh, down that particular ballot line, which in this case would be row A. Uh, a surge in um, a surge in turnout is beneficial for Democrats in New York. There's just no two ways about it. Now you have two to one is is the ratio for enrolled Democrats to enrolled Republicans statewide, and in, in New York City, um, you have that it's a six to one almost. That said, there were a number, there were a couple of areas. I mean, by, if you if you believe that, then you would also believe that, for example, Congressman Grimm should be uh, no longer having a job, but he does. Um, his opponent was weak. Um, the storm also was a big, significant factor, and we can get into that. Uh, you, uh, but then uh, on the other side, Tim Bishop, who's a Democrat and also has a storm ravaged district in Suffolk County, uh, did quite well against Randy Altschuler and Randy. Alchiller did uh, almost beat Bishop two years ago. So I'm going to say that the large percentage of this was turnout-based, and um, turnout is very powerful, uh, and that is not something that you can overcome with money. Even at the national level, billions of dollars were spent, and what you ended up with was essentially the status quo, Barack Obama in the White House, the Republicans in control of the House, and the Democrats in control of the Senate.
0: I think a lot of people look at 2009 where there were at the local level there were republican inroads 2010 where at a larger level the republican inroads particularly in New York where the republicans took back the state senate and they took a number of congressional seats and then voters look at 2012 and they think okay people are frustrated with the president there's a bad economy and people like if if it's a referendum on the president then probably republicans are going to win that certainly was not the case. Republicans fielded some good candidates. You mentioned Randy Altshuler. Uh, I think uh, Maggie Brooks in the Rochester area was a, was known as a formidable candidate. And uh, and uh, Matt O’Heaney, who probably could, would have won back in 2010, if not for a third party on the on the ballot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you have a number of races where Republicans were expected to at least come close and that wasn't the case, and in fact, they lost two seats: Dan Hayworth and uh, and, Burkle. and- that, that's
2: true. Yep, that is true. So what? Although the Democrats lost a seat too. I mean, at the congressional level, they lost uh, they lost Kathy Hochul.
0: Right, but that's a incredibly lopsided Republican enrollment.
2: Well, and yet, and and yet, she managed to win it in a three in a three candidate race in a special election last year, in a special election that turned on the Ryan budget. This year, she tried to do the same thing with Ryan on the ticket as the vice presidential candidate, and it didn't work out for her, even though Chris Collins, the winner of the former Erie County Executive and the Republican in that race, admitted that she was the stronger candidate in terms of retail politics. So some of this is local. I mean, you can't look at all of these and say, across the board, make pronouncements, with the exception of turnout, and and I'll stick to that one. But each of these has... extenuating circumstances and factors at the local level that I that I don't think you can discount. And it's difficult to say, well, the Republicans were expecting X and it went Y. And so the result and the reason was Z. It, it, I don't think it's that simple. And, you know, that politics is never that simple.
0: No, that's why we have you on the show to explain <laughs> it to us. That's <laughs> the most important thing. So you talked about the impact of Sandy, right? Which were the races that Sandy actually had an impact and where was it uh, significant?
2: Well, we are. I mean, first of all, I think that the most significant one probably was the Adabo Ulrich race, which is the state Senate race in Queens that the Republicans felt very confident about going in. Eric Ulrich is a New York City councilman. He is young, he is a rising star. And the Senate Republicans, state Senate that is now, um, poured millions into that, well over a million, including their allies' spending and, and Ulrich himself. And they felt Adaba was vulnerable. Then the storm hit and took out the base, the conservative base that would have come out for Ulrich, including Breezy Point, part of which is no longer even there thanks to a fire, which um, as I'm sure your listeners know, uh burned a home owned by retiring Congressman Bob Turner and also the state conservative chairman Mike Long, another home that belonged to him. So that was a real problem. Plus there was no campaigning going on in the final Days of that race because both of those candidates who are seated elected officials were focused on constituent service and storm response and not it was not actually appropriate in their eyes to suggest to people that they should be concerned about politics. So that was one. You also have another, which is interesting, and I think that you're probably familiar with this race. It's it's um, Senator Jack Martin's, who's in Nassau County. There was a, there's a 3,600 vote margin between himself. And his little-known Democratic challenger, a guy named Daniel Ross, the Democrats didn't put any money into Ross's campaign. Now there's something like 18,000 pieces of paper out there between uh, machine votes that weren't counted, absentee ballots, and affidavits uh, filed by people um, but who were displaced by the storm and allowed by the governor to just go to whatever polling site they could and, and cast a ballot. There's a lot of paper to sort through there. I know that the Democrats are hopeful in that one. And then you also have... Um, going a little bit north now, we're in Westchester County, the Bob Cohen and George Latimer race, where uh, going in, the Republicans again spent a lot of money there, thought Bob Cohen was strong. He came close two years ago, almost uh, took out Susie Oppenheimer, the seated Democratic senator. She decided to retire. The Democrats fielded uh, assemblyman George Latimer, and he won by a landslide, uh, very uh, you know relatively speaking in comparison to some of these other too close to call races.
0: So Liz, tell the uneducated or unfamiliar why the state senate matters and who will control it and why that matters.
2: Why the state senate matters? Well, I mean, obviously the people state go senate. out
0: to vote for president. They don't necessarily, as yeah. you mentioned, they don't necessarily look at the down ballot races. Well,
2: that's actually unfortunate because um, the the down ballot races, state government, and and honestly, local government is arguably more important or more significant on a day to day basis for voters and residents of New York and they should be concerned. These people set your tax rates at the local level. They make zoning decisions at the very local level. I mean these is this is where the rubber hits the road with government. Yes, the president and the and the congressman or congresswoman, these people are representing you in Washington. They're setting policy for the entire country. But in terms of where you are personally impacted, that happens in Albany. That happens in your local city hall or town board or what have you. I mean, people really should pay attention. And unfortunately, there's sort of diminishing attention paid uh, to those local races the lower down you get on the ballot, when it really should be the opposite. That said, the state Senate is the upper house in the state legislature. It is the last bastion of Republican control in New York. The Republican Party has really had a pretty crummy... Ten years, arguably, the last time they controlled uh, the governor's mansion was when George Pataki, who I believe you worked for, Michael, if I'm not mistaken, that he was the You're last.
0: Not, you are not mistaken.
2: The last Republican uh, who was
0: there, and he, so, he very thankfully appointed me to the Lipa board.
2: And uh, well, which is a whole another kettle of fish. We could have that discussion too if you wanted, but uh, you know, this that is when Republicans were in their heyday, if you will, and even one might argue that that wasn't even a heyday, but he did defeat uh, a liberal lion um, who had national aspirations. The guy's name, as you recall, is Mario Cuomo. So
0: yes, uh, the, Republic,
2: the Republicans have been doing crummy ever since. They tried to take out Kirsten Gillibrand when she was incredibly weak, and they failed. They couldn't even field a known candidate against her. And now she, I would argue, is probably um, you know sitting quite comfortably in that seat. It would be very difficult to dislodge her from the U.S. Senate seat. Uh, they don't control any of the statewide elected offices. So the Senate is the last, last area that the Republicans have control. And it was very thinly um, divided going in. And now uh, it's a mess, to say the least.
0: Well, tell us about that mess. Uh, I think that we hear about it and we, we think about it, but control of the state Senate is obviously, as you mentioned, matters, and who is going to be in control.
2: Well, just to, just before we get there, I mean, why it matters. You're talking about what kind of legislation goes through. So I know that your listeners probably met some of them a good proportion were not thrilled by the passage of the same-sex marriage bill uh, that occurred last year. That occurred on a GOP watch uh, during, the, during the control of the chamber by the Republicans who were so desperate to remain in the good graces of the governor, so desperate to try uh, and retain control and moving the the conference to the middle which is where most of New York is as it becomes more and more democrat that they had four members cross party lines to vote yes three of those members now are are gone or potentially the last of them gone one of them was elected reelected quite well and he used to be a democrat so that 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 particular piece of legislation aside there's a whole host of of bills that are out there some of which the governor is pushing to uh, decriminalize the possession of small amounts of marijuana, for example, to raise the minimum wage. Uh, these things are issues, a fracking ban, that the Democrats would very much like to see passed. The Republicans do not. The business community also uh, invested very heavily in trying to keep the Senate Republican because they believe that this is the last wall between them and overspending and overtaxing that they see as the hallmark of the Democratic Party. As of yesterday, uh, we now have 31 senators saying that they will caucus with the Republicans in the state Senate. 30 of them are actually Republicans. The 31st is a Democrat, who your listeners probably know, Simcha Felder, former New York City Councilman. Has uh, He won this so-called super-Jewish district, defeating David Starobin, the newest Republican member of the chamber. Um, and he has said he'll caucus with the Republicans. That gives them 31 votes, one vote shy of a majority. Uh, the Democrats uh, have a problem because four of their 31 that they're counting it, um, are the Independent Democratic Conference, and we don't know where those folks are going to end up. Their leader, Jeff Klein, ran on four lines. This a, lot year yeah, a lot
0: of Jewish names here.
2: Yes, a lot of Jews. The leader of, of that IDC, as it's called, ran on four lines, including the Republican line. He has a good relationship with Senator Skellos, the majority leader, uh, then there's also two races that have yet to be called. So we've got a lot of, uh, a lot of, of moving parts here, difficult to keep track of them all.
0: So they make a lot of fodder for Republican I'm sorry, for reporters such as yourself. Thank
2: God. So, yeah. Thank God. Yeah. So that's
0: excellent. And actually the predominance of Jews and some of the intrigue of internal Jewish politics, as you, uh, as you alluded to, uh, May kind of segues to a question I want to ask you as far as covering the Jewish community and the Jewish politics, uh, particularly within the microcosm of the Orthodox community. Uh, have you found that as a somebody who used to be on the city beat now has moved a little bit up to Albany, where you know it's certainly the it's certainly the same.
2: Um, I would say that the prominence of the Orthodox community is more is, is more dominant in New York City politics. Even though, obviously, you have um, upstate enclaves of, of orthodox Jews, particularly in Kyrgyz Yoel, there's a split there, I understand. I haven't covered it as closely as I might in the past, but that community has managed to sway entire congressional races. Um, they actually, No, not this time around. Not this time around, but they did help uh, Nan Hayworth defeat, um, well, they helped John Hall defeat Sue Kelly. Um, and that uh that flipped the seat from republican to democrat and then of course nan hayworth subsequently defeated john hall
0: so with their help as well
2: with their help as well right so th- this is we certainly do see that's a swing district yeah even after redistricting but we certainly do see a an, a prominence uh and a power base of orthodox jews i mean dean Scalos worked very hard on on orthodox jewish issues last year and he spent quite a bit of time in williamsburg if i'm not mistaken and also, you have, of course, the speaker of the assembly is an Orthodox Jew. So there is um, Shelley Silver. In case, in case I know someone out there doesn't know who he is, makes his
0: home right here on the Lower East Side.
2: Indeed. So there's definitely um, there's definitely a power base there, but it, it is not as significant, if you will, because there the the power base in the city is smaller. You've got a lot of competing interests at the state level. And so they um, control a smaller share, if you will.
0: Very interesting. The, uh, the one, I, get, I guess just to get back to idea of casual voters, when you talked about that before, uh, who is the casual voter and how, does, how, do, how, do, how do they reach out to? How, how do elected officials reach out to somebody who's only a casual voter who really isn't paying attention?
2: Well, at the, at the national level, I mean, I, I know that um, there have been a lot of stories in the final weeks of the campaign and then after about of uh, the, these incredible, highly technical and organized voting machines operations, if you will, campaign machines, I should say, um, that are based that's based on incredible amounts of data um, and algorithms created by behavioral scientists. I mean, it's really highly technical. That's at the national level. And so not only was the Obama campaign reaching out to these folks based on information on everything, not just about how they voted and what their registration is, but like what kind of you know, movies they see. I mean, all sorts of things.
0: If you read that- Guns & Ammo magazine, you're probably... What? well
2: right but that's very that's very rudimentary i'm talking about uh, like you know what kind that. of coffee you might even drink that 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 they take do they look at
0: people's checkout bills from the supermarket i mean what way if they have organic versus I, non-organic i
2: don't know i do there's a new book about this out actually that i that i do want to read about the approach and the highly the technical approach now that is used to win campaigns interesting at the state level it's not that not nearly. Well, that. they don't
0: spend that much money here in a non-swing state. Mm,
2: the president, the president does not. That's correct. The presidential candidates, right. right? But Here, I think that there, there's a more traditional way of, you know, door-to-door IDing your voters, knocking doors, making targeted phone calls, sending out mail. You know, that the usual stuff that people that campaigns do. I mean, the casual voter. Also, you have a lot of people who self-identify as independents or moderates. Those folks are often the swing groups that um, can't, candidates are trying desperately to try to connect with. And I think it's a very difficult thing to do.
0: Sure. Talk. I think we have time for one last question. And I want to just really get an idea of the impact of the super PACs. All this money was supposed to be flowing into politics and the election to swing it, uh, I think, more on the Republican side than the Democrat side. But what what was the impact?
2: Well, oddly, um, not that significant. I mean, uh, if you look at all of the money again that was spent at um, at the national level, what did you end up with? You ended up with the status quo. So that's kind of ironic. Uh, however, at the state level, there were some super PACs that got involved that were um, successful. Um, uh, the one uh, race that I think is probably most obvious is the forty sixth Senate District, which still remains. Um, at undeclared i mean uh, victory is that they're undeclared the democrat is leading by 139 votes the republican for whom the district was drawn by the senate republicans is um assemblyman george amador he's trailing slightly they're going into a recount it probably will last for several weeks um uh, several hundred thousand dollars came in uh on the to assist the democrat uh who was little known didn't have much name recognition to speak of and uh, you had outside interests, including uh, George Soros' son, Jonathan, who created a super PAC. Ironically, the point of that PAC is to get money out of politics. It's campaign finance reform. So he spent, I don't know, $200,000 and change on this particular race. And the point, eventually, the end goal is that he wouldn't be able to spend that
0: money. Wow. It's, uh, it, it's hard to understand when, when the conventional wisdom, I guess, is that Money really buys a lot in politics. it seems then this election with all this extra money it, it seems to be disproved
2: and- yeah i I would argue I would go back to. Um, the money you know, people ma- are still going to be important, the aren't point. they?
0: Aren't the money people still going to be important in the in politics? Of course they are, oh, yes.
2: Okay. I mean, you can't run—I mean, just look at Andrew Cuomo, who espouses campaign finance reform and yet is sitting on almost $20 million and is holding a, a fundraiser at the Waldorf to celebrate his 55th birthday, and the, and the, 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 the lowest-rate ticket you can get is $1,500. How much all the way of that
0: is to, going to hurricane victims? None of that is going to hurricane victims, no. So, that's so sad. Liz, I want to thank you for your time. We'll have you again. And uh, thanks for letting us uh, get some of that insight into what, how important local politics is and how important it is to be involved and to be aware of what's going on. And this is Spin Class Politics with Michael Fragan. Thank you, Liz Benjamin, for joining us. Thank you. Folks, we have brought you the issues. We've brought you some insight. I have to say the future of our country is very much at stake over the next couple of weeks. The future of the state of New York, the state of New Jersey, and all beyond. Very much up in the air. There's a lot to talk about. A lot to think about. And the most important thing is to be involved, to be aware, to understand the issues. Just because the elections are now over, that's not a time to rest. And that's not a time that politics doesn't matter. Everything that goes on in our lives is impacted by government and politics somewhat. So hope you've enjoyed this episode and we will be dealing with some very weighty issues next week. Following us is The Book of Life with Charlie Harari and this is the Nachum Siegel Network, nahumsiegel.com, jm in the am.org. This has been Spin Class with Michael Fragan. Thank you for joining us.